Um, Brent and I have a very uh, unique relationship, and uh, it has really blossomed over the years, and we've become very, very close, and have kept in touch even as he's been at seminary in St. Louis. And I thought that it was a fitting thing, you know, that I'm going to interview somebody kind of a la, a la Dr. Young uh, before we speak on worship. And uh, I thought it fitting to bring my good friend Brent up here because I, I suppose that I've discussed the topic of worship uh, with Brent more than any other person in my whole life. And uh, so I thought it was, a good, it was a good thing to bring him up here, especially before he goes back to uh, seminary. So I start by, by the way, he has no idea of my questions. Uh, I gave Kathleen Meyer a little head start. That's why she was so uh, shining. Uh, but Brent has no idea, so when he fumbles and you hear him on the Internet later, uh, please note that. Uh, Brent. <laughs> when we first met, uh, I thought you were kind of a, a little punk. And, uh, and, when, when, and you thought that I was kind of a big, fat, out-of-touch dork. Uh, but over the years, uh, we've discussed worship with each other uh, over and over and over, and I've I found, and I'm sure you have too, that it's become just a, a, a critical part of our relationship, our friendship, our brotherhood in Jesus Christ. Why is, why is it such an important part of our relationship? Um, <clears throat> uh, I guess it's such an important part of our relationship because most often when Jim and I um, discuss things, particularly when I was here, at church, um, it continued. Ministry obviously is, is a lifestyle uh, for all Christians, but when we're around here a lot, we tend to be thinking about ministries and different things going on, and so we ended up talking about worship a lot. But I guess worship uh, was such a common discussion for you and I because uh, worship is so common in every life of every believer. And so, if we're going to talk about our lives, and we're going to talk about ministry, and we're going to talk about what the Lord is doing, then we cannot not talk about worship. That, that's, that was going to be my follow-up question. Sunday, Wednesday, Sunday, Wednesday, it's so much more than that. And worship should be a part, you would say, in the life of every believer, every relationship, you would, you would concur with that. Yes, that's one of the things that I've learned um, over the years uh, about worship is that I used to isolate worship, for example, to Sundays and Wednesdays or organized meetings. And then I really started to see that in a sense, in a, in a very real sense, all of life is worship, not to... The words uh, glory and glorifying God and worshiping God are not perfectly synonymous, but they're very similar. And um, when we go through life, as all of life is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, you start to see that in a sense all of life is worship. And when I started to understand from the scriptures and through other people's lives that I could, for example, worship God as I played basketball or worship God as I hung out with my family or worship God as a corporate body on Sunday mornings, it was uh, an interesting and, and freeing time. Good. All right. Now, I have a hymnal collection, which you know about. In fact, I was just given the, the Coleman's Songs for Men as a gift tonight. Uh, I've got about 30 hymnals or so. you have this one, Bruce? <laughs> uh, uh, but one of my favorite, I would have to say, even though I have, I have some hymnals from the 1800s and all that, one of my favorite possessions is this, because you gave it to me, and I, even the writing is starting to wear off of it. And I would say that I... Rarely does a day go by here, I keep this on my desk here, rarely does a day go by that I don't turn in this at one point and read hymnody. And I know you're the same way. Why are we, why are we always into these things? 
Uh, I think with good hymns particularly, there's a lot of bad hymns and bad music, and so I can't, um, I mean, objectively bad, not necessarily I don't like the taste, I'm not speaking of that, but words that just really say nothing, but so much within a lot of the older hymns particularly uh, in that hymnal, uh, it's so obvious that the people, uh, when they speak of the Lord, um, I can sometimes relate with them, but more so I can relate thinking that's how I want to be. Um, when I read, for example, Come Thou Fount, and I hear um, Robert Robinson write, um, Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. I mean, who can't relate with that? And that experience that he's speaking of is one that I experience uh, often. And um, so, and, and also with teaching, it's amazing the way that a lot of the hymn writers can sum, summarize in really a poetic form um, what the scriptures teach. All right, I've got another one for you. Um, how has your view of worship changed, or has it changed, since you've been off at seminary? Uh, it's, it's a real good question because uh, I've learned one thing: worship, uh, as far as worship style, and everybody, you know, you've been around, around enough now and heard Dr. Young and others speak that worship is not about style and it's not about your taste and all that kind of stuff. But I think it's really hard to see that when you're in um, a, one cultural setting, for example, the Southeast, and to see that. Yeah, it might not be about style and it might not be about taste, but everybody cares about their style and everybody cares about their taste. And then being outside the Southeast in particular, I've seen that um, God is a lot bigger than um, the Southeast. And I love the Southeast and I, I most likely want to be back here, but it's broadened my horizons and helped me to see that people, what worship essentially is about is the heart of the believer focusing on and responding to God. And that, that, that really has little to do with um, what I might like or what so, whoever else might like or what instrument you're going to use, for example. And um, there in St. Louis with many, many good churches uh, around that are very like-minded and similar to Grace of Anne, a lot of it I think has to do with the seminary. Being there, I've seen uh, across the board, they all uh, principially are alike in what they're trying to accomplish with worship as far as a philosophy, as far as having a lofty view of God, but the way that it's fleshed out uh, is amazingly different um, through all the different churches. And so it's just continued to broaden my horizons uh, with particularly the area of style and um, taste. And I've even been challenged personally in my life when I see um, other people, for example, engaged in worship that is true and that it is in the spirit. Uh, I think if C.S. Lewis has a quote where he talks about worship and he talks about how he didn't like going to church at first when he became a Christian and he criticized even the hymns that I particularly like. He's a lot smarter than I am and knows much more about poetry and literature, but he called the hymns uh, fifth-rate poems to sixth-rate music. Um, and he, he talked about how he hated going to church. And we're talking about like the old school, Mighty Fortress type hymns. He didn't think really they were any good. And then he started to see that um, there was an old man in uh, the pew next to him that was uh, worshiping the Lord through those uh, poems that were fifth rate uh, and hymns that are the music that was sixth rate. And he was really broken and started to see that worship wasn't about analyzing how good, for example, the writing of a song is, but worship essentially is about the heart of the person that is singing that song. And, and then worship's more than just singing a song, but that's kind of a good example to think of. And so I've been challenged through others, um, and even at the seminary with people from all over the country, all over the world, really, and to see that um, they're not all like us, and heaven's not going to look like this. So, Excellent job. Brent Harriman, my good friend. Thanks, Brent. And a uh, perfect segue into what we're doing. So if you would take your Bible and open it, please, to Leviticus. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. And we'll start looking in, verse, uh, in chapter 10. 
Leviticus chapter 10, starting in verse 1. The Word of God reads like this. <clears throat> Aaron's sons Nadab and Abihu took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense. And they offer, offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So, fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke of when he said, Among those who approach me, I will show myself holy. In the sight of all people, all the people, I will be honored. Aaron remained silent. Moses summoned Mishael and Elzaphan, sons of Aaron's uncle Uzziel, and said to them, Come here, carry your cousins outside the camp, away from the front of the sanctuary. So they came and carried them, still in their tunics, outside the camp, as Moses ordered. Then Moses said to Aaron and his sons Eleazar and Ithamar, Do not let your hair become unkempt, and do not tear your clothes, or you will die, and the Lord will be angry with the whole community. But your relatives, all the house of Israel, may mourn for those the Lord has destroyed by fire. Do not leave the entrance to the tent of meeting, or you will die, because the Lord's anointing oil is on you. So they did as Moses said. And let's pray again. Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you read in the bulletin, I had a little blip about tonight, and did you see my little thing in the announcements there about uh, 10,000 people and all that stuff? Uh, I, I used to be in a band. Some of you know I used to be in kind of an eight-piece band, and it was very, I guess you, you would say, it's kind of like the Blues Brothers, and I was, I guess, John Belushi. And, uh, and so we did a kind of a lot of jumping around, and we had horns, and we, we picked up a lot of big gigs. I mean, we played, I did that for eight years, and we played country clubs all over the place, and we played every room in the Peabody, and we picked up uh, fancy corporate gigs and, you know, lots of buffet food and everything, and um, we even played the Mid-South Fair once. Oh, really? Oh, that's right. That's right. Y'all kind of old, but um, also, we played, uh, so the Hogues had seen us. That, all right, all right. Uh, we also played the, the uh, uh, barbecue fest, huh? Hey, buddy. All right. Well, you see how you see how uh, well loved I was by the community. But uh, uh, well, we we played the barbecue fest a couple times, and not like three o'clock in the afternoon. This is before like InSync and all those people were coming in town. We we had like the headline slot Friday night eight o'clock where the Deltones were out there, and we were this big band, exciting. And I was a front man. I was a better front man than I was singer. The front man guy kind of got the crowd jacked up. Uh, and that was my job. And on a big stage, I mean, the, sta the, the, the stage is like this big. So you, you're, you're moving the whole time. And, and w there were 10,000 people out there. This happened two, two times. But one time in particular, there's 10,000 people out there. Uh, they're all kind of, you know, a little bit lubricated from too much barbecue sauce and everything. And they're all just kind of packed out there. And just, they were doing whatever I told them. You know, put your hands in the air. Mm. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I had these little moves I'd do, and I'd kind of go across the stage, and they'd just, they'd go nuts. And, uh, and I remember I, I, I was saying, you know, let me hear you say, oh. And they'd go, oh. And, and I thought, man, this is the pinnacle of my life, you know, because I got 10,000 people to say, oh. 
Well, ladies and gentlemen, my whole point in all that is my, my job was to get crowds of people jacked up. That was my bread and butter. They paid us big money at your FedEx Christmas party because we could go out there and get everybody kind of jazzed up and laughing it up and yucking it up and dancing and all that stuff. That was what I was good at. Well, enter the church world and you play music and you orchestrate and you get players and what should be the heart set of the leader? Listen, I could get you jacked up. All I have to do is put, uh, you know, shotgun uh, in the tape player and your foot will start tapping. I, I say that, ladies and gentlemen, to kind, of, to kind of bring it to a more serious note. I say, I don't think this is an, an exaggeration. I think there's an epidemic throughout our whole nation in the Christian world where people confuse jacking up rooms full of people with authentic worship. You know, just like people will say, well, how's that church doing? Well, we got 1,400 people. Is that the measure of how well a church is doing to say that we got a lot of numbers? Is what makes worship authentic is the fact that you've got people that are jacked up having some kind of emotional experience uh, that they're sharing with each other. We see in our text today, ladies and gentlemen, that worship must be True worship can only be that which is prescribed as acceptable to God. I found it interesting that Jimmy, you know, Jimmy's doing a worship on Sunday mornings. He, he mentioned this passage. He mentioned Nadab and Abihu. And he also used the word prescribed. And I was, I was elbowing Tammy going, honey, that's exactly what I'm talking about Wednesday. He used that word prescribed. That's very important because for all true Christians, the answer to the question, what does God find as being suitable? It's that which is prescribed, that which is found in the Holy Scriptures. You know, God regulates, He controls. You know, all of human life is supposed to be under the authority of this book. You know, we, we ourselves know that the Bible equips us and it corrects us and it humbles us and it teaches us and it is a living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. You know, when the Holy Spirit dwells in you and makes that which is spiritual uh, available to you and real to you and perceivable to you, by you, you know, it, it, it cuts because God says it must be this way. God says holiness is this way. You know, God says, uh, entrance into my presence is by this way, and this way only, and it, and it takes away grace. Well, it does that with worship, too. Worship is no different, and like Brent was saying, we have to move beyond. I think this is good, and I think this is good, and I like this, and I like this. That's normal. We like this thing or that. But I'll tell you what's very dangerous, is churches that are, that are uh, having... Uh, contemporary worship this hour and traditional worship this hour. And you know what they're doing? They're getting themselves all ready for a church split. And they're getting themselves all ready for division amongst the people of God. And I think that it portrays on the part of the leadership a misunderstanding of what worship is, what God prescribes, 
and the definition of what the church is. And a world and life view that Brent was talking about. The way we view living in this world as a person that's been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Well, the question is, how does Scripture regulate worship? We know that this book says all kinds of things about who God is, all kinds of things in the Old Testament that, that are not uh, in, in practice now that Christ has come in the New Testament. And so how do we know, uh, how do we know what Scripture does in the area of regulating? Well, there are two views that you can take, basically. You can take the view that says, well, um, whatever Scripture doesn't say, you know, Scripture says don't, 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 and whatever else is fine. And uh, that sounds a lot like the law, doesn't it? I mean, it, you know, well, let me find a loophole to get around all this, you know? Uh, the Bible, in other words, nowhere does the Bible say uh, don't bring a trampoline in church. Well, does that mean we can bring a trampoline in church? Nowhere does it say don't bark like a dog. Does that mean we can say all God's people said, Whoa. No, it does not. Conversely, God has prescribed certain things. And the, the classic reform view, the, the view held by your senior pastor and by this church and by, by uh, the, the divines of the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, the Puritans, all those guys, is that, is that it's more than a, a list of do's and don'ts in the Bible. Rather, it's got a positive spin. That God, he just doesn't say, don't, 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 everything else is fine. What God says about worship is, I want this. You know, don't go looking for some loophole. Don't try and impose your taste and your heritage and your whatever on this issue of worship. I want this. Let me read you what uh, Westminster Confession of Faith says. This is uh, chapter 21 in the larger catechism, and it's, it's, uh, it says this. The light of nature showeth that there is a God. I mean, isn't that true? I mean, all men are without excuse. Look at a hummingbird. Look at the Grand Canyon. Listen to rainfall. I mean, God made all that. Uh, all of nature shows there's a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all. He is good. He doeth good unto all. Of course, he causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. And he is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and with all the soul and with all the might. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. There's Jimmy's word again, the operative word. Uh, the idea is, in a nutshell, ladies and gentlemen, that worship is not for us. It ain't for us. It's for Him. I mean, there are pleasant and wonderful and joyous byproducts. I weep often. My heart is full of joy often when we worship. But the, but the ultimate goal is that it's, a, it's for him. It's for him alone. Now, to our text. Nadab and Abihu. Um, it, it says that um, uh, in, in verse 1, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers. Um, they put fire in them, added incense, and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. Now, why was it unauthorized? Why was it contrary to his demand? Well, perhaps 
Some commentators suggest perhaps they were schnockered. Because you look ahead to um, uh, verse 8, the Lord said to Aaron, you and your sons, this, is ju this just happened. I mean, they were consumed. Their cousins dragged them out of the camp. Uh, they were given instructions by Moses. Uh, and then the Lord said to Aaron, you and your sons are not to drink wine and other fermented drink whenever you go into the tent of meeting or you will die. Maybe their faculties had been removed from them and uh, they attempted to go and serve the Lord. How would you like it if Jimmy Young did not have all of his faculties due to something he partook in and, and then proceeded to try and minister? God says that's not a combination. Well, maybe that's it. I don't know. It's not conclusive. Perhaps uh, they didn't use the right sensor. You know, a sensor is just a metal thing and they put coals in it and they put incense on top and, and that's maybe they didn't use an article that was consecrated to the Lord's service for use in the tabernacle. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they brought some foreign object in there. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe they took the coals from the wrong place. Uh, don't turn, but uh, it says uh, in just a, a few more chapters, it says um, uh, Aaron is to uh, take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense. Maybe they took the, the, the coals from the wrong place. Most likely, though, is that Nadab was not high priest and Abihu was not high priest and they seem to be carrying out high priestly functions. Whatever the case, one thing's for sure. The Bible says it was unauthorized and it was contrary to God's command. <laughs> whatever, whatever meaning you give that, we know that to be true. That being the case, God judged them severely. Nadab and Abihu, they... they uh, proceed to worship in accordance with their own imaginations, their own desires, their own wisdom, and we see how severely God judged them. The point is that we are not able to determine what God likes or what he doesn't like, apart from what is written in his word. This is our guide. This is the thing under which we live in a, uh, under its authority, his authority, and worship is no exception. Turn, if you would, uh, keep your finger there, please, and turn, if you would, to Isaiah. You go to the Psalms and go right. Uh, Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. I'll, uh, I'll tag this on to what we had discussed uh, a couple weeks ago. The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. You know, uh, Jesus quotes that uh, in Matthew and Mark. And do you know what he proceeds <laughs> that quote with? A word? Hypocrites. He says, you hypocrites. And he, and he quotes Isaiah 29. These people come near to me with their mouth. Well, they got church words galore. They honor me with their lips. Church words galore. But their hearts are far from me. Their worship is made up only of rules, ritual, procedures, things we go through that we think are going to placate God. Their hearts are far from me. Rules by men. God doesn't want it. What does God want? 
He wants the adoring heart. That's what God wants. Folks, I want you to be encouraged. You know, you come here on a Wednesday night, uh, midweek. You know, y'all, and you, all, you and I have worshipped together many, 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 many times over the past year. And, uh, and so I want you people to, I, this is not scolding in any way. I want you to walk out of here greatly encouraged. You know, worship is, is the acknowledging and accepting and embracing uh, and magnifying of who God is. You know, it's reveling in who God is. We know Him to be thus. We know Him to be thus. We know Him to be thus. And our hearts are, are full of joy. You know, the word doxology, doxa, means what? Praise. Legain means to speak. When we come together and we sing songs and when we come together in a chord like this and, and say amen, we are speaking praise. We are speaking. We are, we are expressing, attempting to bestow the honor that is due God because we know him to be this. We know him to be this. We know he's good. We know he's faithful. We know he keeps his promises. We know he's long-suffering. We know he's omnipotent. We know these things about him and we express it. God delights in that. God delights in our, our business of expressing from the deepest part of our soul uh, our great uh, honor for who he is. You know, you can tell when you've gotten a, a flattery versus a genuine compliment, can't you? When somebody flatters you, you, you see through that, don't you? Uh, what about somebody that kisses up at work? I mean, doesn't that get under your skin? When you, you know, you're out at lunch and there's some guy and you know, the boss cracks some joke that's you know, only vaguely funny and there's some guy going, <laughs> oh, Bob, oh, you're killing me. And, and you're looking at him going, I know what you're doing. And if it doesn't make your stomach sick when you see something false like that. Or how about when you get a compliment that you don't deserve? You know, I play a lot of instruments. Uh, you know, I fiddle around a lot of things, and, you know, I'll probably play a skillet with a ladle before it's all over. And people will come up to me, and they'll say, they'll say, you have mastered all those instruments. And I want to say, no, I haven't. No, don't beat yourself up. You've mastered them. And I want to say, you know, you know why I play so many instruments? I'm a quitter. <laughs> you know, I pick something up, fill around with it, get bored, and then I pick something else up. I mean, that, that's, that's why I play something. I, I haven't mastered one single instrument. I'm kind of okay on some things, but I've not mastered anything. I ain't playing with the symphony. And people will insist, you've mastered those things. And I say, I have this aversion. I don't want that compliment because it's not true. Don't you hate that? Don't you see somebody, don't you hate when somebody's kissing up or hate when somebody gives you empty flattery? You think you hate it. God can't stand when people come to him and say church words. Like he can't stand when they, when they go through rituals but their hearts are far from him. He can't stand it. Um, turn, if you would, to uh, John, the Gospel of John. Keep your finger there. Gospel of John. Sorry. Chapter 4. Verse 19, and you know this is the story of the woman at the well. Jesus comes to this uh, Samaritan woman, tells her uh, that he knows about uh, her, uh, uh, that she's living with a guy and she's had five husbands and all that. And she, uh, she uh, uh, peaked. She says uh, in verse 19, Sir, uh, chapter, John chapter 4, verse 19. She says, Sir, 
I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain, which is a place, or in Jerusalem, which is another place. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. What is Jesus telling this woman? He's telling her that he's addressing her superficial understanding of what she always thought worship was. Well, you know, we got this place, and I all have this place, and you say that we should be in that place. And Jesus says, forget the places. Spirit and in truth. He's telling he's telling her what worship was about all along. You know, it's kind of like you know when Jesus is, is uh, delivering the Sermon on the Mount, and he uh, he says, uh, "I didn't come to abolish the law." I came to fulfill it. Not a jot or a tittle, not the tiniest little bit. I did not come to throw God's law out. I came to fulfill it. And he proceeds to, to, to say, he goes on to say, uh, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And he's not changing the law or augmenting it or saying, you know, that you just throw that out because that's no good. I got some new good stuff for you. He's saying, you have heard some rabbi you have heard some, you've seen some writing, you've heard somebody tell you that, that God's law meant this, but I tell you this. If you had to ask Jesus' sermon topic in the Sermon on the Mount, he would say probably, heart righteousness. I look at the heart. God peers into the heart. You've heard it said that you do this, 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 and you can wash your hands and everything's fine. I peer into the heart. I think that's what Jesus is telling this lady, too, about worship. You know, you've heard it was this place, this place. Forget about all that. I'm telling you that God wants worshipers in spirit and in truth. It hasn't been a matter of raising hands in worship or church pews. It hasn't been a matter of electric guitar or an organ. It hasn't been a matter of an animal sacrifice or a grain offering. It's been a matter of the heart all along, and that's Jesus' point. One of the most striking things about our passage today, uh, if you can find it again quickly, one of the most striking things is found at the end of verse 3. Moses, there are sons, ladies and gentlemen, you know, your sons, his sons. His sons are consumed by fire for doing something that was in opposition to God's command. Uh, and it happens at the end of verse 3. I mean, it just, it just sits there. Aaron remained silent. You think of the pain he must have been in. But he remained silent. Further, you go to verse 6. Moses says, he delivers a, a word from the Lord. Moses says to Aaron and his sons Eleazar and Ithamar, listen, I know you're grieving. 
Don't let your hair become unkempt. Do not tear your clothes as a, as a person would normally do in a, in a point of, of severe grief. Don't do that, or you'll die too. The Lord will be angry. Do you think that's too severe? You know who didn't think so? Aaron. Aaron remained silent because he, he had this understanding of who God was. God says, I am holy. I am to be worshipped in a specific and prescribed way. It is not to be breached. And Aaron knew that and held his tongue. Turn, if you would, to Romans. And with this, we'll try and bring it to a close. Romans chapter 12. Of course, I, I hesitate to say this because most of you have heard it 50 billion times, but every time you see therefore, you're supposed to ask what the therefore is there for. You've heard that before. Every time I say that, somebody writes it down. So, you know, whenever you see a therefore, ask what the therefore is there for. And basically, when you see a therefore, it, it is introducing a conclusion to an argument that's been laid out. Okay? And so Paul comes to this conclusion that he's coming to. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship, or in the King James Version it would say, this is your reasonable service. Now, ladies and gentlemen, uh, the point is not, all right, God's done his work, now you go do your work. You know, he's done all that, now come on. You got to get busy and repay because uh, he's been so good to you. Now come on, open up the, 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 the love out of your heart. The point is, a broken and contrite heart is what God enjoys. Uh, David understands this as Abel understood it. Whenever dawned on Cain, that the sacrifice that God wants is something that pours out of this work of salvation. Now, we have been saved. We have been enabled. We have been given eyes to see. We have been given spiritual perception to perceive spiritual things, as the Scripture clearly teaches and it's our reasonable service. It's our spiritual act of worship in response to say, because of who God is, because of what He has done, because of what He deserves and what we were and what He has made us and what He has now enabled us to do, it's only reasonable to be people who live this life with a sense of worshiping Him. A sense of giving our all, not one hour a week and not 10% of our income and, and not a simpleton's logic of jacking up a room full of uh, all, uh, enthusiasm. But all of that and all of life the way God would prescribe it. That, that's a message of great joy, ladies and gentlemen, because it thrusts all of, our, all of our worship back onto who God is, back onto what He has done. We ought to be a happy-hearted, joyful people who are rejoicing because... He has done this great thing. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever, think about it, in your whole life, have you ever given God all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your strength? You know, the Bible, the psalmist says, ascribe to the Lord Almighty once, ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. 
Have we ever done that in our very, very best moment? Have we ever ascribed to the Lord the glory due His name? No. Of course not. But the joy for the believer, men and women, is that life is so greatly sweetened when we engage in man's most glorious and eternal calling. You were built to be worshipers in spirit and in truth. You were saved that you might be worshipers in spirit and in truth. These Israelites were brought out of Egypt. Why? That they might worship me in the desert. That's why we're a saved people. What a way to go through life, ladies and gentlemen. To, to think that what we think and do and live can be motivated now in Christ Jesus by the sole desire to give pleasure to the God who loves us. Heavenly Father, we, we know what your word has told us. We think of Paul's description in the first 11 chapters of Romans that describes your glory and power and majesty and perfection and holiness and goodness. And your word tells us that all have sinned and have fallen short of that high standard. Your word tells us, Lord, that uh, your arm is not too short to save and your ear is not too dull to hear, but you separate yourself from sin. You separate yourself from iniquity so that you will not hear. And so, Father, our hearts are made very glad that you have saved a people, that you have made a way available in Christ Jesus to your holy presence. We thank you, O God, that he lived a holy life, laid it down in our place. We thank you, O God, that he paid a debt we could never pay. We thank you, Lord God, that we can call you Heavenly Father because of Christ's work that will never change. And we thank you that we who know you belong to you and can live lives that are full of joy, remembering that it is our glorious and eternal calling to live a life that would bring pleasure to you, the God that loves us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, y'all. See you next week.